This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. My name is David Dalt. I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith, and I'm an assistant professor of Christian spirituality at the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. I'm here with my friends Heidi Schlumpf and Father Dan Haran. Heidi is executive editor and vice president of National Catholic Reporter, and Father Dan is the director of the Center for Spirituality and professor of philosophy, religious studies, and theology at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss news and events through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. Father Dan and Heidi, welcome to you both. How have you been? Good. Good. Good to be with you, David. Heidi, pleasure as always. It's uh, a very busy time of year. Heidi knows this as, as, as well as anybody else because we are recording on the first day of the meeting of the bishops. We're also recording on my nativity. So I have saw the calendar come and go one more year. And so it's exciting to spend this time with you guys virtually. So cool to be with you. Happy birthday to me and to you. <laughs> Happy birthday. Ah, I don't have that one on my calendar. I'll have to put that down. Happy birthday to oh, you. Oh, I Dan. thought you would have been celebrating the novena <laughs> leading up to. <laughs> and Heidi, how have you been? We're great. In fact, our family was able to get out of town this weekend. The Chicago Public Schools were off Thursday for Veterans Day. Shout out to all the veterans out there. And then the mayor gave us all Friday off as well for Vaccine Awareness Day, she was calling it. It was also, uh, I'm pretty sure, not enough subs for all the teachers who were planning to take a sick day. So we did. I took the day off and got out of town. We went to Starved Rock, did a little hiking in the Rain, sleet, snow, and hail. <laughs> we got all four kinds of precipitation, but it's always good to get out of the city and enjoy nature a little bit. So I'm back and ready to cover the bishops' meeting. I'll be doing it from here in Chicago, but we've got three and eventually four folks from NCR who will be in Baltimore. So busy week. How about you, David? How are you doing? Doing good. Our kids got the first round of vaccines on Friday before our recording here on Monday, and we had a, a good weekend. Neither of them was down for the count too much from the inoculation. Things continue to go well with my book revisions, and we're on track for things to be turned in mid to late December. I'm feeling really strong about that. I just picked up another book chapter that I'm going to do for a project on theology and lost, and I'm looking ahead to getting my calendar set for 2020. 
22 in terms of writing projects and other sorts of activities. So all that is good. It's my normal kind of November rush towards the end of the year, but I'm doing pretty well. I'm glad to see the two of you. I miss you. And the fact that we aren't able to be together, it's always nice to be able to catch up virtually and to see you both. So I'm grateful for the time. We've got a very packed show today. And as Heidi mentioned, uh, we are recording this before we have all the information about the Bishop's Conference, but we will be speaking about that and some of what they have been saying, particularly about President Biden leading up to the meeting. We're also going to be tackling recent comments by Archbishop Gomez and a memo about uh, vaccine availability sites in Madison, Wisconsin, that was promulgated by their diocese. So we'll be picking all of that up in the program today. You are listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan. I'm here with David Dalt and Heidi Schlum. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. This week, the U.S. bishops are meeting for their fall General Assembly in Baltimore, Maryland. By the time you listeners hear this podcast, they may have already voted on the most controversial of their agenda items, that is the teaching document on the Eucharist, which began as an attempt by some bishops to deny communion to pro-choice politicians, specifically our second Catholic president, Joe Biden. A draft of the document, leaked before the meeting, made no explicit reference to Catholic politicians who support abortion rights and instead discuss a theology of the Eucharist. But it's mostly a 400-year-old theology. As Monsignor Kevin Irwin of Catholic University of America wrote for NCR, the document reads as if it could have been created before the Second Vatican Council, end quote. And it still has a disproportionate emphasis on worthiness to receive the Blessed Sacrament. Those who have been following this controversy since last November will remember that from the beginning, this whole process of drafting a document on the Eucharist was a response to the election of Joe Biden. It started with the formation of a secret working group to address the problem of a pro-choice Catholic president and was followed by the Inauguration Day statement from the Bishop's Conference president, Archbishop Jose Gomez, which spoke of, quote, moral evils. The process of spinning the document away from the Biden communion controversy began at the Bishop's June meeting this year and seems to be continuing up through now, despite some bishops' continued desire to return to the issue of pro-choice politicians. Heidi, NCR has editorialized that Catholics should, quote, not be fooled about the history and original purpose of this document. What do you think the bishops will do this week? Well, of course, I don't want to make any predictions because you never know what will happen. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, so I'm hoping things go well there in Baltimore. But there is this definite attempt to try to make this go away. This has been a PR nightmare for the bishops everyday Catholics. This is not a priority for them. Even if they don't agree with Joe Biden on everything, they don't think that denying someone the sacraments is the way to go. So there's been this real attempt to kind of downplay the whole pro-choice politicians portion of this document and instead say, well, we just decided that we needed a document about the Eucharist and how great it is and a teaching document to help Catholics better understand it. That may be successful. It may be that 
They'll prevent some of the more extreme bishops who want to force the pro-choice politician issue from getting anything into this document. And in fact, the bishops have rearranged their meeting in Baltimore this week, I think precisely to do that. So normally the bishops have a public meeting on Monday, another public meeting on Tuesday, and then they go into executive session that is private. The media are not allowed on Wednesday. This time, they're having executive session at the front end on Monday. So today as we're recording and having that private meeting at the beginning. And I suspect that's in part so that everyone can say their piece then and they can get this smoothed out. I believe the current agenda, which we just received this morning, has them discussing the document on Tuesday and then voting on it on Wednesday morning. And then they do have a second executive session on Thursday. So I think Catholics aren't stupid. They know that the timing of this document happening right after the Biden election and all the things that have been said, both by that secret working group and then by several of the bishops who stood up at the June meeting and couldn't help themselves and mention Joe Biden and by name, I think they know what that this is not just a coincidence that they have a Eucharistic document right now. It seems to me that the document as it's being spun, even if you take them at their word, Given especially Kevin Irwin, Monsignor Irwin, is is a renowned sacramental theologian. He was for many years the dean of the School of Theology and Religious Studies at Catholic University of America. This is not somebody, this is not a lightweight, let's put it that way. And I thought his piece about the outdated and, and problematic theology that undergirds what exists in the leaked draft document is not something we should brush past quickly because in an effort to avoid, as you're saying, Heidi, the the kind of PR nightmare that has resulted in this spin like, oh, well, let's then let's write something generic about the Eucharist. What I see here is a solution without a problem. And what I mean by that is the sort of straw man or even red herring that's being used to help motivate this spin among the bishops and, and their staff is that Pew study before the pandemic that was was really a flawed study from a sociological perspective, from an analytical perspective, in that it, it asked questions without providing the appropriate language or background. So the result was the majority or something like this, a, a significant population of, of self-identified Catholics in the public more broadly, quote unquote, did not believe in transubstantiation. And therefore, that was interpreted by the bishops and some others as the faithful do not believe in the, quote, real presence. As I've said on this program and I've said in writing elsewhere, transubstantiation is not the teaching of the church. As the Council of Trent makes clear, transubstantiation is a scholastic category, a metaphysical explanation or theory about what happens in what is ultimately a divine mystery. What the church says is we believe in the sacramental presence of Christ in the Eucharistic species, period. That's our faith tradition. We don't know how it happens. We don't know, you know, Thomas is using Aristotelian ancient philosophy and categories to try in an analogous way to make an explanation for this is how we could understand how at the same time something tastes and feels and looks like bread and wine. It is at the same time the sacramental presence of Christ. I say that because everyone got all worked up about the faithful don't believe in the real presence of Christ. That's not true. That's not actually what the survey concluded. The survey was flawed because it asked a question with a medieval category that a lot of Catholics think is what Catholics believe, but in fact is just one analogous way to describe a divine mystery. So I, I think that's really important because I think 
it's this is problematic through and through and through and through. Not all old theology, quote unquote, is bad, but to use medieval or in this case Tridentine understandings or articulations of the sacrifice of the mass to explain what the Eucharistic means today without reference, as Monsignor Irwin points out, without reference to Sacrosanctum Concilium, the church's highest current teaching on the liturgy, is a major, major oversight is generous. I would say it's a major problem. So I just have a question about the kind of procedure here, because it seems like there was momentum among some reactionary bishops who wanted to punish Biden publicly or to cow him publicly. And then it seems like there was a backlash against that. And so now they have this meeting. And so they're procedurally saying, well, we said we were going to talk about the Eucharist, but now we're going to talk about it in this way, not in this polemic way. And so they've defanged all aspects of it when there are real problems on the table, as you have said, Dan, and we have real issues that we could be that the bishops could be speaking about right now. COP26 just having ended and and the climate crisis and other sorts of matters of that. So I'm just wondering from you both, because I don't fully understand how they've come to their current agenda about this. It seems, well, we said we were going to talk about it, so we're going to talk about it, but not in the way that originally we were going to talk about it. I'm just trying to understand that. I have a thought, and this goes back to a theology professor I had when I was in my master's degree programs. And I remember her saying once, one of the problems, again, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. In the Middle Ages, part of the scholastic methodology was to get more and more subtle and, and, and parsing questions of philosophy and theology. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. The problem is when, as she pointed, I thought very well, when you take a complete answer to a partial question, then you have a problem because what's presented is assumed to be the whole answer. But the question that was the prompt for that is this tiny little sliver of maybe ancillary or maybe not even ancillary. Just It's just a theoretical query as opposed to – and I'm thinking of that, David, because of your question, which is like, why do this? Well, A, it's intellectually stimulating. It is interesting. I'm a scholar. You're a scholar. We're academics. We like to wax poetic and creative about these things. But – there are real issues, and I can't help but think all these cliches come to mind about when you're on the Titanic, you know, you keep rearranging the seats because the inevitable sinking is underway, and what do you do? I don't want to think about the sinking. Or like the productive procrastination many of us know, you have a deadline coming, you're like, oh, well, I really need to clean the kitchen or the bathroom or you know, do some laundry. I, I mean, there's, I, frankly, I'm just being an armchair analyst here, but I feel like that's the Occam's razor. The simplest solution is it's scary and stressful. And overwhelming to think about things like systemic racism and gender inequality and climate change and the abuse crisis in the church and all the kinds of things, our polarization, all of this, it's easier to say, well, let's rehash Trent. Well, and of course, what else isn't on the agenda for this four-day meeting? Synodality. So the Pope himself has called for this to be the focus of the church as part of this three-year process, and the bishops are in the middle of the diocesan-level synod gatherings and conversations. They extended the deadline, so now it's going through August instead of ending in May because a lot of dioceses dioceses need a little extra time to get it set up. But are they discussing that at all? No. Now, to be fair, at the last meeting, there was a vote that said the majority of the bishops wanted to move ahead with this document. So they had regional meetings over the winter and then drafted the document. And so now they have to vote on it. They can't just make it go away after they voted to have it. But of course, again, the roots of this is in the culture war 
that some bishops would rather fight than some of the bigger issues facing the church, both internally and externally as part of the culture. And they think the best way to fight that culture war is to penalize someone like Joe Biden, who as a public Catholic and the president of the United States upholds the current law of the land. I I really like you talking about the roots, Heidi, because this kind of speaks to something that came up as my wife, Kira, and I were having coffee this morning. And I I oftentimes defer to Kira because she's a lot smarter and better moral theologian than I am. But what came out in that conversation was you can't really start with an issue like abortion and reason yourself to the gospel. If you start with the gospel, you can reason yourself to a consistent ethic of life that includes an appreciation for the Eucharist and an appreciation for the unborn. But if you start with your premise being this culture war issue, you can't get back to the hospitality, to the forgiving love, and to the all-encompassing mercy of God that the gospel gives us. And so I'm I'm wondering about the kind of orientation of the premises here. As the bishops continue to maneuver in this way, it seems like they're starting, as you're saying, from a culture war basis, not from a gospel basis. Yeah, and I think it's important to remember that not all bishops necessarily are for this um, orientation or even for this document. So NCR hosted a, a video event last week, and it's posted on our website now, that included Bishop John Stowe from Lexington, who not only said that he doesn't plan to vote for this document, even the way it is, without mentioning politicians specifically, but he has problems with the whole politicization of the sacraments and this whole culture war mentality. So what's happening is that we're seeing this split in the among the bishops, and the numbers are not there that it's half and half, but you have this sort of strident culture warrior bishops, and then you have some more moderate progressive bishops, a few of them, and then you have a lot of guys in the middle who are neither here nor there on that. But if you put forward a document like this that even though medieval has nothing offensive about the Eucharist in it, they will probably vote for it. But again, I don't think everyday Catholics and certainly the media who's covering this is going to be fooled by that. And again, if you have this division where church leaders want to fight the culture war and other church leaders want to follow the whole mercy encounter Pope Francis way of doing things, I can tell you what the majority of Catholics in the United States are going to pick hands down. They're going to pick Pope Francis. Well, that's good to hear. I I was going to say the yellow flag went up with the nothing offensive about the Eucharist. I I think that's exactly Monsignor Irwin's point. And I I think most sacramental theologians and liturgists who are not culture warriors, who are not interested in the politicizing of the Eucharist or— what is granted, as you said earlier, Heidi, I think a, a document that goes against the CDF, goes against Pope Francis, goes against the papal nuncio, goes against all of the more senior authorities in the church would be disastrous in terms of a platform for denying communion to anybody, including Catholic politicians. That's bad. But I don't know that this is much better for different reasons, because it is a Potentially, if if the draft document is as it stands, then it is setting back the theology of the Eucharist by 400 years. That's not a small thing. 
and I don't want to pick on NCR editors and editorial board, but like I thought actually the headline could have been even clearer about that because I think that's Irwin's point is, hey, we need to pay attention to this because it's not just, oh, this is old timey, because some people will say, well, that's a good thing, isn't it? The church is 2,000 years old. But what Trent articulated as the purpose and meaning of the celebration of the Eucharist is not what Augustine and the early church fathers in both East and West and what the tradition for 2,000 years has said, which is what Sacrosanctum Concilium sought to do with that resourcement going back to the sources in order to update it for the world today. Trent, we have to remember, for all the good things, and there were many good things that came out of that council in the 16th century, it was a council of duress. It was occasioned as a reaction to the Protestant Reformation. So it is not necessarily great theology. So I, I just bring that up because I think there are other ways in which this is going to be used, maybe not in the same overtly political way, but ecclesially, I think this is a real problem, especially in the wake of Pope Francis's revision to celebrating the Latin Mass. Well, let me just ask you a question then, Dan, to follow up. Since this is a teaching document, it needs to pass by the two-thirds majority, and then it also has to be approved by Rome. So do you think those problems with, let's say, where they pass the current draft, the problems of completely ignoring Vatican II teaching on Eucharist might be a problem that could get it hung up in Rome? Well, I think now that Cardinal Seurat is no longer the prefect of divine worship, and I think that Pope Francis is still the bishop of Rome, and you have the current CDF administration and a couple of those other dicasteries, I would say in ordinary circumstances, it would not pass. There would be a response with comments about that because it's going to be glaring. There's no reference in here to Sacrosanctum Concilium, which describes the Eucharist as the source and summit, not primarily as a sacrifice understood in the 16th century way. Sacrificium in Latin can mean a lot of different things, including a self-offering in the spirit of the New Testament Christology of Christ's, the eternal word self-emptying, God self-emptying. There's a lot there that is not about the bloody sacrifices it was understood in some portions of medieval theology. That's what I would think would ordinarily happen. I do wonder if in an effort to just kind of let's rubber stamp this and get this out of the way so that we can all move on from this debacle that was created by the USCCB in response to Biden's election and all the kind of culture warriorship, warrying, <laughs> warring, I don't know, <laughs> battling that's been unfolding, there might be a sense of prudence or expediency on the part of the CDF and of, of the Holy See to say, whatever, let's just move this along. I would be disappointed if that was the case, but I would understand why they would want to do that. I think, I still believe though, that if what Monsignor Irwin was analyzing uh, a week or two ago is what's on the table and does get voted by two-thirds of the majority or two-third majority of the bishops. I still think the CDF would be wise to respond with, this is not up to date. This is not accurate Eucharistic theology. Well, we will find out on Wednesday, I think, whether all these machinations behind closed doors are successful. I mean, some people speculate that some of the culture warrior bishops might not vote for this document because it wasn't what they were hoping for in terms of denying communion to pro-choice politicians. So you never know, but we'll be watching closely. And of course, people can follow along at NCR online for the news and opinion coverage we'll have in the next couple of days. And we'll certainly be talking about it when we come back. Why don't we take a break? We'll be back in just a minute. You're listening to The Francis Effect.
Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt, and I'm here with Father Dan Haran and Heidi Schlumpf. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. On November 4th, Archbishop Jose Gomez of Los Angeles delivered a virtual keynote address to the Congress on Catholics and Public Life in Madrid, Spain, titled Reflections on the Church and America's New Religions. The speech was presented as a response to what Gomez perceives as emerging threats to the church and American society. His opening section is titled Secularization and Dechristianization, claiming that there are large forces in society today that are actively hostile to institutional religion, especially Christianity. Among these are what he describes as, quote, social movements and ideologies, unquote, that have been incubating in, quote, our universities and cultural institutions, unquote. Gomez believes that the pandemic has accelerated this dechristianization, which includes the many social justice movements of the present age, including Black Lives Matter. After laying out this hypothesis, he goes on to make the controversial claim that these efforts for justice and equity in society and the church are false stories of salvation. In a derogatory and dismissive fashion, he names and rejects key terms like social justice, wokeness, identity politics, intersectionality, and so on. Gomez's speech garnered immediate pushback and criticism, particularly from members of minoritized communities who are actively involved in the work of justice and peace. Fordham professor Father Brian Massingale told National Catholic Reporter, quote, he has a serious misunderstanding and perhaps even a willed ignorance about the goals and motivations of contemporary social justice movements, unquote. Alessandra Harris, the co-founder of the online publication Black Catholic Messenger, told NCR, quote, Today's social justice movements are rooted in the very ideals that Catholics profess, that all life is sacred, that the least among us deserve respect and protection, and that we must strive to end oppression and hatred, unquote. Dan, you wrote a column last week titled, Archbishop Gomez's Comments Reveal Anti-Intellectualism Among Church Leaders, in response to his address. What should we make of Gomez's remarks and the discussion that is unfolding? Well, <sighs> what should we make? I, it's been interesting hearing folks respond to my piece for la from last week, my column. It's been overwhelmingly positive, though I haven't heard from any of the bishops directly, so I'm sure there are some who are unamused, the Archbishop of Los Angeles included, especially. So I, I heard about this address right away, and I read it, you know, Archbishop Gomez had it posted to his bishop page on the Archdiocese of Los Angeles website, so it was there for the public to read in English, and I think it's also translated in Spanish. I had a different reaction than some of my, my colleagues and, and friends and, and fellow Catholics, Though I totally understand it, and ultimately, I think in another time and space, I would have had the same reaction. Their reaction, as you captured in, in Brian Massengale's response and, and so many others, it was disappointment, frustration, anger. Honestly, the first feeling I had was pity. I, I felt very sad. And, and I say this, and I didn't mean it flipply in my column. There was One of the negative feedbacks I got was from a colleague who I don't see eye to eye with in, in the theology world who sent me a snarky note about this line where I say, the thing is, I like Archbishop Gomez. I think 
politically and ecclesially, we see things very differently. I've been very warmly welcomed into the archdiocese over the years and have spoken in many different contexts at the LA Religious Ed Congress. I think that venue is a great example of the church with its broad tent and its inclusivity. There are lots of different speakers and vendors and all Catholics of all walks of life show up there. And it's a really beautiful, I think, example of the church. And and he deserves credit for that. And, and I think he does. Over the years, I've seen him around certain issues, especially around immigration and migrants and refugees and border issues. He's been really strong on that. I, I, I mean that very seriously and sincerely. My disappointment, my pity came in the, oh my gosh, he just doesn't know what he's talking about. And this is, it's one of these things where you see somebody say something, whether it's in a department meeting or in the office space or over the Thanksgiving dinner table with family, you can almost see in slow motion, like a car crash, somebody saying something that's completely ignorant or misinformed or misunderstood. And how do you respond to that? So that's what led to my particular take. My gut reaction is what led to this column, which is we've seen this. And actually, it, it helped me to reflect on what I call missteps in recent years and in recent months, where the bishops individually, but also especially as the USCCB collectively, these are guys who I truly believe got into ministry with good intentions. I don't think even the ones who are the most kind of culture warrior, hostile, aggressive to Joe Biden and other people, even the Holy Father against the Holy Father, I don't think in their hearts they started out in this career of pastoral ministry with malice. But along the way, the more closed off one becomes to reality, the more insular, the more sort of solipsistic one becomes in their worldview and in what voices and information you allow into your horizon— the more disconnected you are from the people of God and from the Holy Spirit's communication to the world. So whether that's LGBTQ issues, whether it's about anti-racism and racial justice in the church, whether it's about the social justice movements, I just think it's a matter of profound ignorance and I think at times willful ignorance. Some of these brothers of ours do not want to know. Well, and that I think is really well said. There's a phrase in the activist community and in, in communities that are vulnerable when policy is on the table, know about us without us. To not actually engage with people or to talk with people, but to act as if you have an expertise about their experience or where they're coming from or why they're bringing these kinds of things. And it brings us back, and I'm going to pitch this to both of you, I think it brings us back to the real need for synodality in the church. The church in America has a really hard time at the leadership level, actually listening to the lived experience of its parishioners and congregants, particularly the vulnerable, particularly the suffering, particularly those the church wishes would disappear or just go away. And this is a problem that we're seeing at the level of the bishop's conference, but it's also playing out parish to parish. And these kind of remarks are just a tip of the iceberg kind of situation for me. Yeah, that's interesting perspective, David. I was at the anniversary of Cardinal Bernadine's death event that was held at Catholic Theological Union last night, and Julia Rubio was bringing up the issue of the Common Ground initiative that he started and, and that how difficult it is to seek common ground among groups today. And it's not just about the polarization, but there we were, there was a little bit of a Q&A around the sticky issue of how do you do common ground with people who don't even really accept your humanity in some sort of way? And is that safe and healthy for people or is it necessary to at least find something that you might agree upon? And also the representative from the Jewish Catholic Studies program there was I had a few things to say about that, too, in terms of Jews seeking interreligious dialogue. 
I, I think the reaction to this otherwise relatively small speech, right? It wasn't even for a U.S. audience necessarily. There's a pretty right-wing conference that was being organized that he was contributing to virtually. There's been quite a reaction, and not just from some of the theologians that we've mentioned already, Brian Massengill and others, but a couple um, groups that did statements because this was so concerning to them and so dismissive of the important work that they've been doing. Pax Christi had a statement against Gomez's words, uh, the Association of U.S. Catholic Priests. And then there's a, people are signing a, a statement that's being uh, passed around by Faith and Public Life and Faithful America. What this says to me, too, especially the timing of it right before this bishop's meeting, is what a disappointment Archbishop Gomez has been as president of the conference. So there was a lot of hope and optimism among people across the ideological spectrum when he was elected to be president, the first Latino bishop to be uh, elected president of the U.S. Bishops Conference. Many people praised his courage and brave words that he's uh, made about immigration and the treatment of people who are different. But it just seems like somehow he got bit by the culture war bug or a couple bishops maybe got to him about this because he seems to be not only the one who you know, carried this whole Biden communion thing along as president, but then also then to have this speech right before the bishop's meeting and all the attention that's on the church during this time is really unfortunate. I wonder, too, this is implied in, in my take in my column last week. The thought that keeps coming to mind, too, is fear plays a big role in all of this, of course, right? Fear of complexity, fear of change, fear of ignorance. And I, I can't help but wonder, there are a lot of women and men, just people in the pews, who are looking for some anchor, some sort of stable starting point or, or answer to complexity in the world. I also think that there's a fair number of our church leaders who are likewise seeking that. This is one of these examples. There's an irony here, right? Because a lot of these same fellows, in particular, mostly men, would like to characterize the church as apart from the rest of the world, that it's some kind of oasis from the, the secular, or as Gomez calls it, the de-Christianizing currents of our time. And yet these are men who are exactly conditioned and socialized like the same people who are seeking these kinds of refuges that are pseudo-oases. What I mean by that is the church, as the Second Vatican Council reminds us, and it's in the title of the pastoral constitution. It's the church in the modern world. We are not separate people when we are in our, our faith community. We are not separate people when we are responsible for the leadership of a diocese. We are not separate people from gathering for mass on Sunday than we are at any other moment in our lives. And so we bring our whole selves to our faith, and we should bring our whole faith to the rest of our lives. And I think that has not really been addressed. I think this, what I see, again, in these kinds of responses some of these bishops are deeply arrogant men, and it's a disdain, as we see in other sectors of society, for expertise and professionals, and you see it around the pandemic with the anti-vaxxer stuff, which we'll talk about in a little bit. You see it around Eucharistic theology. Bishops have a, a lot of training and, and are generally smart men, many of whom even have advanced degrees, but by virtue of being a bishop, your day job is not to be a researcher of medieval Eucharistic theology, like Professor Irwin is, Monsignor Irwin is, or others. So I think one of the things that drives me a bit nuts is that this kind of attitude, this sort of statement, 
reflects a growing trend in our culture that we see again play out with certain segments of the population and politicians and media, which is to reject actual expertise. And David, to your point earlier, something that I find totally uh, unconscionable is the rejection of actual lived experience of people who are different. There's a hubris that's involved in assuming that my experience, and I'll speak for myself as a white cisgendered male cleric in the United States, that my experience is the same as everybody else's, whether that be somebody who's a woman or somebody who is an LGBTQ person or a migrant or what have you. It's not my place to say. Well, I'll just add, too, that this is such a missed opportunity to be an outreach to young people for whom many of these, quote unquote, pseudo-religious social justice movements have been so meaningful and so important in their lives and could be connected to their faith in in, in a way rather than someone drawing a dividing line there. So um, just last Last week, the Ignatian teach-in in Washington, D.C., that brings together all these young people from high schools and colleges, met to have programming, and a number of NCR folks were there. And they were just blown away by the enthusiasm that these young Catholics have for all of the social justice movements, particularly around anti-racism and immigration and all these other issues that are, are plaguing our nation today. And so this is an opportunity where the church could be saying, hey, yes, we're with you on that, and come see how your faith can even further inform that, or how those can be, we can make connections between those two things. And instead, it draws a line and says, that's outside of us. And, and so if, you're, if that's important to you, then don't bother with the Catholic Church over here. So what, what a missed opportunity. Well, and I just want to piggyback on that, because this kind of speaks to a point I brought up in the last segment. When you begin with the gospel, all manner of issues of morality and justice become enlivened for you. But if you then say to them, no, not the gospel that way, only the gospel this way, you have to start picking and choosing between the vulnerable that you're going to have solidarity with and respect and and protect. Then that begins to take the power out of the gospel because the gospel is for everyone. And it's going to be applied in a variety of situations. And one of the things about having the differently ordered body of Christ that Paul talks about, where we're all involved in different activities of this gospel, is that we have the opportunity to see the need in front of us in a kind of applied subsidiarity. We look at the level where the need is there, and we bring the gospel to that level, and it's going to look different. And we can't, we can't, channel it through just certain issues. It has to go there through many issues. So I'm, I agree with you completely. It's a missed opportunity, but I think it is par for the course for the way that the leadership of the church has been trying to manage the gospel for the last several generations. Well, and I've spent a lot of time talking about how there isn't adequate consideration of, of the best of human knowledge and research and, and learning in, in recent years, because that has not been considered in remarks like those of Archbishop Gomez's. Neither is there the good theology. So to talk about some of these things like the work for social justice as a, quote, alternative soteriology or alternative story or narrative of salvation is is the most preposterous thing I've ever heard when one goes and cracks open, let's say, the book of the prophet Jeremiah or Ezekiel or Hosea or Amos or, I don't know, any of the four gospels in which – The incarnate word is crucified for being the prophetic voice, not just voice of God, but the very voice, the word of God incarnate. And so to me, there's a kind of blasphemous or idolatrous streak in this too, by saying that when human beings, regardless of their religious affiliation, are doing what Hosea calls for, or or Micah rather, chapter 6, verse 8, to love justice, to love tenderly, to walk humbly with our God, 
This is what God calls us to do. And it's deeply troubling to me, particularly as a person of faith, like I know the three of us are, and many of our listeners are too, to hear the faith being presented in such a way that is antithetical to what we're about. Then the question remains, what does Archbishop Gomez think this narrative of salvation is about? What is the church for? If not, as Sacrosanctum Concilium tells us, the source and summit of our faith, we are nourished by the Eucharist to go back into the world, as Augustine says, to be what it is we receive, the presence of Christ for one another. I can't think of a better place, Dan, to end than that. So we will certainly be keeping an eye on this, and we may come back to it later in the season. But for right now, we're going to leave the conversation here. You're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Heidi Schlumpf, and I'm here with Dan Horan and David Dalt. Every couple weeks, we get together to discuss news and events through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. With the recent FDA authorization of COVID vaccines for children ages 5 to 11, many parents are breathing a sigh of relief and have been scheduling appointments to get their kids vaccinated. But for Catholics in the area of Madison, Wisconsin, They've been getting very mixed messages from the diocese. In early November, the Madison Diocese issued a statement instructing that none of its 102 parishes is to be used as a vaccination site, whether for children or adults. This action brought swift pushback from Catholics on social media. For example, Jesuit Father James Martin decried the move in a tweet declaring it to be, quote, anti-life, end quote. On November 13th, the diocese issued a statement that described the public reaction as a mischaracterization of their position. The statement went on to say, quote, Since there are already ample vaccination sites within the 11 counties of the diocese, Bishop Donald Hying has decided it would be best for parishes and other diocesan entities not to host vaccine clinics. End quote. David, the Diocese of Madison has claimed that they simply want to take a neutral stance with regard to vaccines, but many are reading between the lines of these statements and seeing a political or maybe even an anti-vax agenda at work. What's your take? I think that in all things, we should lead with charity. And so in interpreting this, one tack is to simply take the spokespeople from the diocese at their word, that this is simply a way of being neutral and that Catholics of conscience have many different kind of ways that they can maneuver with this and they already have many different sites. Okay, so I think that is a way to read this. I am reading this as they could be a vocal proponent for a particular position that supports life <laughs> and the promotion and preservation of life, and they are choosing not to do this. And their public witness is going to be utilized and can be predictably utilized by certain aspects of the community, particularly among the Catholic community, as authorization for the continuance of a method of action that is leading to the deaths of people. It's leading to the the 
continuing spread of infection, the difficulty of being able to control infection, and to a narrative that says God is going to take care of all of it and the government is not going to take care of any of it and I don't have to do anything because my obligation stops at my skin or the edges of my house and my family and forget the rest of you. And so I, that's my take, and maybe it's not the most charitable take, and I will completely admit that I have had some uncharitable thoughts in the last few days with regard to all of this, but I find myself agreeing with Father James Martin that this is an anti-life position, and it needs to be addressed. Well, I don't see why the, the Bishop of Madison then wouldn't take a similarly neutral position when it comes to abortion in the diocese. So I guess, if, well, why not? That's a controverted issue in the public square as well. It's a very politicized issue. So I, I'm being obviously facetious here, but it's the fact that by naming that, people are like, not in a million years would the Diocese of Madison take a, quote, neutral stance toward a, a life issue such as this. David, I agree with you entirely. It's anti-life. There is not a neutral position when it comes to vaccines from the Catholic perspective. There are people who are dissenting publicly from what the church has said, going all the way up to the Holy See and the USCCB itself, admittedly reluctantly because they can't seem to find consensus among themselves. But it's also just basic science, public health policy. It's a life issue. There are few clear, as clear paths to protect and promote the sacredness of human life than there is with the vaccine in this pandemic. It's just as simple as that. There is no neutrality to be had. Otherwise, then I think the Bishop of Madison and others who are like-minded Switzerland tendencies need to take neutral approaches when it comes to communion to pro-choice politicians or their anti-abortion approach or what have you. Why not take a neutral stance to euthanasia or a neutral stance to capital punishment? I don't. It, there's an irony here when it comes to claims of other people picking and choosing life issues. It seems to me that the sitting bishop of the Diocese of Madison is picking and choosing life issues. Yeah, I tweeted the same thing. Like, I wonder what other things they'll stay neutral on. And I had also tweeted back when Jim Martin did about my concerns about their initial announcement. I think the circling back after Jim Martin tweets was especially interesting to me because then we're in this kind of tit for tat debate. Madison, Wisconsin, which is in my home state, and I have a lot of love for that area. It's an interesting diocese. It's known as one of the more progressive parts of the state of Wisconsin, partly because the University of Wisconsin is there, but also the, the seat of the state government. But it's been historically, or at least in re recent history, a haven for some right-wing Catholics under the previous bishop who you know sort of nurtured them. And I think some of their priests there are leaning in that direction as well. And so my guess is that the bishop was trying to avoid the vax controversy by just saying we're going to we're going to stay out of it but by announcing that publicly it really boomeranged and was it, it accomplished the exact opposite it put them in the spotlight for saying hey here's an uncontroversial thing and we're going to we're going to remain neutral in it even though it's uncontroversial that people should get vaccines against a deadly virus well, that's what they, that leads to my head scratching, which is why the presumption that this is something to be neutral with. I, I don't understand that impulse. It goes back to take it from the pro-life angles. We've been talking about it before or just the simple practical element. What I don't understand why there is air being given to another side of an argument that's completely insane. 
And I'm going to be so bold as to say that. There are actual legitimate reasons why some people, whether it's cancer treatment or uh, compromised immune systems or their age or what have you, where they genuinely, legitimately cannot receive the vaccine and their very lives are on the line at a degree much greater than the rest of us. Other than that, there's no excuse. It's hubris. It's weird. Anti-intellectualism again. It's this weird conspiratorial thinking. It's, I don't know. I don't, to me, this is a grave, sinful matter because it's saying, it's justifying, as it were, that there there are two legitimate sides to the story. Is that, are you two thinking that way too? Like, I don't, I don't buy the premise. Well, I, I want to add another angle to this. And that is when the pandemic first started and we pulled our children out of the parish school. And then we were making decisions about whether to send our children back into the parish school for education that following year. And eventually we pulled them out of the parish school into the public system. Part of the reason why is because the the the, the Archdiocese of Chicago was taking such a one-size-fits-all approach to the way in which mediation, social distancing, other sorts of things were being mandated at the various levels. I'm chair of the school board of my parish school. I still am. But I was very frustrated by the fact that as chair of the school board and the principal of the school, we had absolutely no say in how to protect the children in the school. The entirety of the mandate was given by the archdiocese and was mainly thinking about schools on the north side of Chicago that are resourced differently than schools on the south side of Chicago. So there is something to be said for having hesitancy and allowing individual kind of locations of these 102 sites to have some control about whether or not they're vaccination sites. But that's not what the Diocese of Madison did. They didn't actually say, okay, we're going to allow parishes to make their own choice and find their own level using subsidiarity about how best to approach this. Instead, they created in under the blanket of, of neutrality, they created a situation where local parishes cannot actually protect their congregants. And for me, that's a problem. Yeah, Dan, just to respond to you as well, is that I think we see this over and over where even church leaders who are maybe not culture warrior, right-wing people themselves tend to give just a little more leeway to people on the right. So like, oh, it's okay for them to differ with the church about this importance and pro-lifeness of vaccines because they're with us on abortion or something else. But that same kind of leeway is not provided to people on the left, as we just discussed about Archbishop Gomez and his trashing of the social justice movements. That doesn't surprise me in some ways, because there's this assumption that conservative Catholics are in general good Catholics, and therefore, if they dissent from church teaching on something, it's somehow allowable. And so then we have to be neutral quote unquote, to somehow placate them. And you're right. Of course, that same kind, you know, argument of neutrality would not be afforded if it were a different issue. Well, and relatedly, I had a conversation recently with somebody who works in kind of higher education and, and was talking about the frustration of some religious communities, some dioceses, some in pastoral leadership in different contexts of this recourse to centralism. We're, we're, we're centrists. We're in the middle. We want to maintain, they may not call it neutrality, but it's this effort to be in the center. And instead of recognizing that centrism could be, let's hear both sides, let's hear all the possibilities, or let's welcome into dialogue a large tent of conversation partners. Instead, it's what you're saying, Heidi. There's this accommodation. It's okay to lean right, but there's this death fear of 
something that might be perceived on the left. And I hate these categories because they're meaningless ultimately. They become metonyms for individual ideologies and different political agendas. What does it mean to say that being anti-vax is conservative? What kind of crazy nonsense is that? Or that pro-science is liberal or something? What is that? I don't get it. You know, as a, as a theologian friend of mine said recently, even the most quote-unquote progressive Roman Catholic theologian is still conservative by a lot of social standards because they're staying in an institutional religion and are contributing to the life of the church in a way where there's increasing disaffiliation. I try to get this through some friend's head sometimes where I'm like, there are circles in which I am considered arch-conservative. I know listeners will find that confusing because I'm con- think about the buffeting kind of you know pressures there because in certain Catholic circles, for whatever reason— I, a Roman Catholic theologian, priest, and religious in good standing, are viewed as some kind of like left-wing like lunatic. But in other circles, I'm viewed as a right-wing conservative by virtue of my affiliation as a Roman Catholic religious priest in good standing and professor. Like, so I, I'm not complaining about that because I think it just the reason I bring it up because it shows the sort of shallowness of these categories and how stupid it is to have some views and say, well, because a politician or because of a, a religious leader who I identify with based on certain cultural assumptions or views or perspectives says something, then that is the authentic way and only way to be. I'm just laughing because both David and I were nodding our heads so much when you said that, because of course we're, we run in those same circles where we're considered lefty in some circles and then considered very conservative um, among people who are not affiliated with institutional religion. And I, I'm just circling back again to the Cardinal Bernadine event I attended last night because I was struck by Michael O'Loughlin was talking about Bernadine's involvement in some of the bishop's statements about HIV AIDS and how he just had an openness to engage with the world. It didn't mean that he diverged from church teaching on anything, whether it was condoms for the prevention of AIDS or abortion or whatever the issue was. He did. He was conservative about all of these church teachings, but he was open to the world and to engaging with the world with the idea that that's what the gospel calls us to do. And now it just seems like there is a group within the church that doesn't want to engage with the world. They want to be separate and pure And if that means small, that's okay too, although they still want a lot of political power. (laughs) And that's concerning. And that really is concerning. And this was one of the big critiques, of course, of Gomez's talk too, is that he did not critique similar movements on the right, that were doing many of the same things he was critiquing movements on the left for doing. So that's the reality we're in. Yeah. I was just going to add that the president of Trinity College or Trinity University in D.C., a, a Roman Catholic um, school in right across, right down the street from Catholic University of America, in fact, wrote a response as well, which I thought was very well done. And toward the end, she mentions the Napa Institute as worthy of, of similar kind of critique. How can you go after people who are putting their lives and, and livelihoods on the line for the sake of human dignity, which is what Black Lives Matter is all about, for instance, or working to alleviate the effects of climate change or so on and so on, and yet at the same time be supportive of these kind of think takes and, and affinity groups that are really at odds. They identify as Catholic, but are in many ways at odds with the church's teaching, certainly with the magisterial teaching of the Holy Father, Pope Francis. I think one other piece that this brings out, and it's something that I talk about a lot on social media, that is that even though the Catholic Church is a universal church, 
it manifests in very local ways. And many communities are really beholden to their bishop for how their Catholicism is allowed to flourish or is curtailed. And here in the Chicago Archdiocese, I say on a regular basis, I feel incredibly blessed that I have Archbishop Cardinal Supich as my bishop because I have an incredible amount of latitude, not only as a layperson, but also as a professor of theology. Not every person is so lucky, and I recognize that. I do think that it is important and incumbent upon Catholics to follow their bishop. That's partly what makes us Catholic. But I also think that the, the the USCCB and certain bishops are making that incredibly problematic for lay Catholics to do, particularly Catholics that, again, are animated in their hearts by the gospel as their primary motivating force. Well, so then we see the phenomenon of people following, quote unquote, bishops who are not their bishops. So you see that sometimes, I think, on the left and as well on the right. I have some understanding and sympathy for people who maybe live in a diocese where their bishop might be right-wing or reactionary or involved in the Napa Institute. And so they're struggling. There's not the option necessarily to move based geographically based on who your bishop is. Yeah, it's interesting to me how all three topics that we were discussing today really are connected in that way with these really different uh, views in ecclesiology of what we see the purpose of the church and and the future of the church to be. I wish the lines weren't so separate and that we could find that common ground that Car- Cardinal Bernadine was speaking about. And of course, I'll be praying that maybe that we'll see some of that at the bishop's meeting these next couple days, but who knows? Come Holy Spirit. <laughs> Come Holy Spirit. That's the prayer. <laughs> And I think that's a good place for us to leave our conversation today with prayer and beckoning the Holy Spirit to be moving in our church and in our lives. Thank you so much for being with us today as listeners. Happy birthday, Father Dan. It's a (laughs) glorious thing to have you on uh, the planet for another year. That's a good thing. Uh, Heidi, so good to be with you. Thank you both today. Thank you, David. Thanks, Heidi. Yeah, happy birthday, Dan. (laughs) Thanks. We'll be back with you all in a couple of weeks. Looking forward to it. The Francis Effect is produced by Sandberg Media LLC and is recorded remotely in Chicago, Illinois and South Bend, Indiana. It's edited by me at the William Adams Studios in Hyde Park on Chicago's beautiful South Side. The opinions of this program are our own and do not reflect the positions of any organizations with which we may be affiliated. We want to give a shout out to the Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They are not affiliated with our program, but they did give us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it very much. Please check out their good work at slmedia.org. This show is made possible in part by our Patreon supporters, and if you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Both of those are at francisfxpod, and our website is also francisfxpod.com. Please tell your friends about the show, and if you're here for the first time, we have seasons and seasons of episodes that you can go back to and listen to for your heart's content. We're so glad that you're here. Heidi and Father Daniel and I will be back in about two weeks. We're looking forward to being with you then. Thank you again for listening.